For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, so we're going to look at Romans 1, verse 18 through 20. And uh, last week, we started this off, Marks of the Creator Hidden in Creation. And we're going to do part two of that. So a little bit of recap here. We started last week in verses 18 and 19, where Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. So, one of the things that I want to warn you about if you're new here and just joining us in our book, The Study of Romans, one of the things you're going to notice is that there's a lot of negative language, especially in the first three chapters. But God often has to introduce the bad news before we're ready to hear the good news. And I remember experiencing that as a brand new Christian, I was studying through the book of Romans and I remember getting to chapter two and chapter three and talking to an older believer and saying, man, it just seems like Paul's just really negative and he's like, keep reading. And then I hit chapter four and five and it started getting a lot better. So hang in there. But he says that people have a natural inclination to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And One of the things that we see, not just out in the world where, you know, uh, people maybe who are skeptical about God may have a resistance to God, but I think this is true probably throughout all human history. And it's really something that we experience as human beings, that there is this resistance to let God give us input in our lives, that we don't want him interfering with our plans. We want, to, we want autonomy. We want to be able to direct our own ship. And so to acknowledge that God actually exists creates really some implications for our lives. That if there is, in fact, an infinite, all-wise creator of the universe, and that indeed we are his creation, then it stands to reason then that we should also follow him. And listen to him. And yet, what we see is the human race has really thrown off God's leadership and has decided to live a life of rebellion against God. And so there's this active desire to suppress the truth about God. He says in verse 20, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that we are without excuse. So, Paul says that when we look out into nature and see what God has made, it gives us a clear imprint of his handiwork. You know, when you look at, you go up north, and you have maybe the rare opportunity to see Aurora Borealis, You see a spectacular display. And what the Bible says is that when we marvel at God's creation, we're glorifying him. That God has left these marks in his creation, artifacts that lead us to a knowledge of him so that we are without excuse. When you're driving through the West in North America and you you encounter, you know, incredible mountains, 
the smallness that you feel and the largeness of these mountains tell you something about who God is. That sense of God's omnipotence that he would create something this spectacular. David in Psalm 19 verse one through five uses more of an artistic metaphor or uh, frames this more artistically. He says, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or a word. Their voice is never heard. In other words, when we look out not only to the earth, but also into the vast sky, we're seeing God's craftsmanship and that it reveals something about who he is, but really in a limited way. David goes on to say, God has made his home in the heavens for the sun. It bursts forth like a radiant bridegroom after his wedding night. I'll let you unpack that. He rejoices like a great athlete, eager to run the race. And so it tells this incredible story. It it describes who God is. Now, I really like uh, art, and I I study art history. And Chuck Close is an amazing artist. One of the things that um, we know about Chuck Close is that he is into portraits, portraiture. And he does these large canvases of hyper-realistic, photorealistic paintings. And the subject matter of his art is primarily portraits. And yet, we know that at some point during his career, there was a sudden shift in his style. He went from this photorealistic painting to then a more stylized type of painting. So... Based on Chuck Close's work, without knowing him, without talking to him, without hearing from him about his own art, we could speculate about why there was this change and why portraits were his subject matter. You might say, well, why portraits? It could be that it captures human emotion. Maybe he's drawn to that. Maybe because rich people commissioned him to paint their faces. I mean, that's a possibility, right? Maybe he has mommy issues. I don't know. You know, you might ask, why did he suddenly shift his style? Well, you could say it's maybe the fragmentation of man due to the shattered humanist worldview. Or maybe it was Watergate, for all we know. Could be hits of acid and Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon that that just altered his perspective. And so maybe he started painting differently. Again, we don't really know. Without talking to Chuck Close, without hearing from him about his own work, it's impossible for us to gather these specific pieces of information. And likewise, when we look out into creation, it tells us uh, something about who God is. You know, for example, nature tells us that this being possesses a vast intelligence. We talked last week about the fine-tuning of the universe and how many of the constants in the universe are on, the, on a razor's edge of preciseness 
such that it would, even if it was off by a little bit, the universe would be life prohibitive. And so this indicates that whoever created the universe possesses a vast intelligence. In addition to that, this being must also possess a nearly unlimited power on the border of maybe omnipotence, being all-powerful, certainly bigger than the universe. Also, this being must have an active will. At some point, this being chose to bring the universe into existence. <clears throat> so, I think when we look at this, when we look at nature, it gives us really basic things about who God is, but it doesn't tell us specifics. And I think, you know, when, when we look at one area, this area that you might call the uncaused cause of the universe, it, it provides evidence about who God is when we look out into nature. I remember encountering this as a very young Christian and this really blowing my mind. This argument is very simple. There are three premises. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. So it's a very simple argument. I wanna to try to unpack this briefly. So let's look at premise number one. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. Um, <clears throat> you know, when you look out into the universe, um, there are specific things that we see that indicate that there was a cause or a beginning to the universe. And um, I think when we look out at, at a number of events, Usually what we do as reasonable beings is we try to trace that back through a chain of cause and effect. And so when we trace the origin of the universe back all the way, at some point there needed to be some cause for the, the existence of the universe. Of course, scientists are a little bit more skeptical about this. Quentin Smith, who's an atheistic philosopher from Western Michigan, says... The most reasonable belief is that we came from nothing, by nothing, for nothing. He must be a happy guy. <laughs> but, you know, that's a common belief that when you look at the existence of the universe, that really we came from nothing. And yet, we really don't look at the world that way for the most part. <clears throat> J.L. Mackey, another famous atheistic philosopher, says this, the universe came from nothing. There is really no good reason why a sheer origination of things not determined by anything should be unacceptable, whereas the existence of a God with the power to create something out of nothing is acceptable. So in other words, he's saying that why is it unacceptable to say that the universe just exists and that it came from nothing? Why, why do we need to introduce this concept of God? Okay, imagine... I walked out into my backyard, right? And I see this thing. It's a Green Bay Packers garden gnome, right? I'm puzzled by this. You know, you might ask yourself, I might ask myself this question, why is this here? How did it get there? You know, just the other day, I walked out into my backyard, it wasn't there. 
I don't recall ever owning anything like this because I'm a Chicago Bears fan and they're rivals, right? And so, which is more reasonable to believe here? That this garden gnome sprang into being the night before without, from nothing? Or that an enemy, someone sent by Satan, put it there to torment me because I'm a Chicago Bears fan? You see where I'm coming from? I mean, you know, things just don't appear out of nothing. Likewise, we should say that nothing doesn't possess properties to create. You know, we talked a little bit last week about how the laws of nature, uh, the physical laws, mathematical laws, those things don't produce something. They don't create anything. They describe something, right? And so... I use the illustration of the laws of arithmetic. I mean, that has never created any money in my bank account. It accounts for how that money got there. And so, likewise, when we go even further back, before the, the laws of nature even were in existence, we're talking about nothing creating something. And that doesn't really make too much sense. And yet, that's what I think many people postulate about the universe, that it simply sprang into being from non-existence. The second premise of the argument is that the universe began to exist. Now, I think in the 1920s, Edwin Hubble's discovery of the red ship shift really changed people's perspective about the universe. Prior to this, most people, scientists, believed that the universe was uh, just there, that it always existed. And yet, Edwin Hubble observed the red shift from stars from distant galaxies. And that indicated that galaxies were moving further and further away from us. I mean, we, ex we experience the same phenomena with sound. You know, when you stop on the side of the road and an ambulance comes up from behind you, it's, it, it gives you this high-pitched sound until it finally passes you. And the reason for that is, as the ambulance is coming toward you, the sound waves are being compressed. But the moment it moves in front of you, it's being elongated. And so likewise, whenever... Uh, Hubble noticed that there was light emitted from these distant galaxies and that it was toward the red end of the spectrum, he knew that the, the waves from this light were elongated, which then caused him to infer that the galaxies were moving further and further away. And so, as a result, scientists came up with the Big Bang cosmology. And really, there are two things that are really the, the two tenets of the Big Bang cosmology. The first is that the universe in which we live in is continually expanding outwards. In fact, now we know that the universe is actually accelerating outward. The second thing is that there was, at the very beginning, a singularity, an infinitely dense point, mathematical point that was dimensionless, but possessed all the mass, all the energy, and time within the universe, and at some point, about 14 billion years ago, 
It exploded and created the universe in which we live. And most scientists hold to this belief. For example, Stephen Hawking and 32 other physicists wrote this rejoinder to somebody who uh, wrote an article in the Scientific American saying that the Big Bang cosmology is incorrect. And Stephen Hawking and his, um, of these other physicists responded and said, there is no disputing the fact that inflation, which is another term for this event, has become the dominant paradigm in cosmology. Many scientists from around the world have been hard at work for years investigating models of cosmic inflation and comparing these predictions with empirical observations. According to the High Energy Physics Database, Inspire, there are now more than 14,000 papers in the scientific literature within, uh, written by over 9,000 distinct scientists in their titles or abstracts. He goes on to say, <clears throat> by claiming that inflation cosmology lies outside the scientific method, these authors are dismissing the research of not only all the authors of this letter, but also that of a substantial contingent of the scientific community. In other words, there's a consensus within the scientific community that this is probably the best explanation for the origin of the universe. And yet, many of these atheistic and agnostic scientists understand that this has some implications philosophically. For example, Robert Jastrow, an agnostic NASA astronomer and physicist, says this, what is the ultimate solution to the origin of the universe? The answer provided by the astronomers are disconcerting and remarkable. Most remarkable of all is the fact that in science, as in the Bible, the world begins with an act of creation. Of course, he doesn't believe that, but he, he really has no other words to describe what happened. John Barrow, an agnostic research professor in mathematical sciences at Cambridge, says, at this singularity, space and time came into existence. Literally, nothing existed before the singularity. So if the universe originated as such in a singularity, we would truly have a creation ex nihilo. It's interesting that he would use this language because it's actually theological language. In Latin, theologians described the event of God's creation of the universe as fiat ex nihilo, that God spoke the universe into existence out of nothing. And again, this guy, he's an agnostic scientist and, um, and yet he's perplexed by this, this event that took place about 14 billion years ago. <clears throat> now, there are some objections to this. First of all, some would say that maybe the best alternative to this would be the oscillating universe model or what they sometimes call the big bounce. And it's the idea that um, the universe began with this explosion, but that it contracted and has, has oscillated throughout time, almost an infinite number of times. And so they say, well, the universe is infinite because of this big bounce. 
Well, in response to this, there are really no known mechanisms which would explain all the mass of the universe could simultaneously collapse back into this dimensionless mathematical point and do so with 100% efficiency to do that for an infinite amount of time. Secondly, the only known force that could draw all the matter of the universe back together would be gravity, which is a weak force. And scientists have speculated that in order for the universe just simply to contract after expanding, gravity would need to be twice as strong. And so I think most scientists have abandoned the oscillating universe model. The second is quantum cosmology. And, and Stephen Hawking is a big proponent of this one. It argues that at the level of the extremely small, there are uncertainties and unpredictabilities. That uh, we are very limited in our ability to measure values at the extremely small level, such as momentum or position of subatomic particles. And so it creates sort of this fuzziness. Therefore, scientists have speculated that the possibility of a universe springing into being as a result of fluctuations within a quantum vacuum within, you know, the first few milliseconds before the universe came into being. Now, the problem with that is Stephen Hawking and these scientists are merely trying to redefine a vacuum as nothing. But a vacuum isn't the same as nothing. A vacuum is really the lowest energy state. And so those are not really the same thing. Secondly, it raises the questions, how did we come about to get these conditions which led to these fluctuations within the quantum vacuum? And so it just leads really us to ask the question a step back. How, how did that get there? <clears throat> So the third premise then is therefore the universe has a cause. And the cause of the universe must have been incredibly powerful and this agent must be eternal. Again, uh, you know, I showed you guys a video last year, or last week, last year. <laughs> I did teach this last year. Um, last week from uh, William Lane Craig on the fine tuning and he produced another really excellent video on this uncaused cause of the universe, which is sometimes referred to as the cosmological argument. <clears throat> Does God exist? Or is the material universe all that is, or ever was, or ever will be? One approach to answering this question is the cosmological argument. It goes like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore, the universe has a cause. Is the first premise true? Let's consider. Believing that something can pop into existence without a cause is more of a stretch than believing in magic. At least with magic you've got a hat and a magician. And if something can come into being from nothing, then why don't we see this happening all the time? No, Everyday experience and scientific evidence confirm our first premise. If something begins to exist, it must have a cause. But what about our second premise? Did the universe begin? Or has it always existed? Atheists have typically said that the universe has been here forever. 
The universe is just there, and that's all. First, let's consider the second law of thermodynamics. It tells us the universe is slowly running out of usable energy, and that's the point. If the universe had been here forever, it would have run out of usable energy by now. The second law points us to a universe that has a definite beginning. This is further confirmed by a series of remarkable scientific discoveries. In 1915, Albert Einstein presented his general theory of relativity. This allowed us, for the first time, to talk meaningfully about the past history of the universe. Next, Alexander Friedman and George Lemaitre, each working with Einstein's equations, predicted that the universe is expanding. Then in 1929, Edwin Hubble measured the red shift in light from distant galaxies. This empirical evidence confirmed not only that the universe is expanding, but that it sprang into being from a single point in the finite past. It was a monumental discovery, almost beyond comprehension. However, not everyone is fond of a finite universe, so it wasn't long before alternative models popped into existence. But one by one, these models failed to stand the test of time. More recently, three leading cosmologists, Arvin Bord, Alan Guth and Alexander Vilenkin, proved that any universe which has on average been expanding throughout its history cannot be eternal in the past, but must have an absolute beginning. This even applies to the multiverse, if there is such a thing. This means that scientists can no longer hide behind a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Any adequate model must have a beginning, just like the standard model. It's quite plausible then that both premises of the argument are true. This means that the conclusion is also true. The universe has a cause. And since the universe can't cause itself, its cause must be beyond the space-time universe. It must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, uncaused and unimaginably powerful. Much like God. The cosmological argument shows that in fact it is quite reasonable to believe that God does exist. All right, <clears throat> pretty good summary. Um, so going back to this point here, we start off our discussion about the uncaused cause of the universe, and we concluded that nature tells us that this being possesses a vast intelligent, intelligence, nearly unlimited power, and an active will. Now, nature cannot or general revelation cannot reveal the Creator's will. It cannot tell us if our Creator is good. I mean, after all, we look out into the world and we see that there's destruction, that there's evil in the world, and we have this sense that things are not the way they ought to be. And so we might conclude, actually, that the Creator isn't good at all, but that He's malevolent. And so... There are a lot of things that creation itself does not tell us. In addition to this, nature cannot lead us into a relationship with our creator if he even or she or it ever wants one at all. And so there are definite limitations to 
general revelation or what nature tells us about God. And yet, the amazing thing is that God did not stop at communicating through nature. Hebrews 1 verse 1 through 3 says, In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son through whom he made the universe. Notice he says that God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, in other words, the Old Testament, that he described himself, that he decided to make a a people special, the nation of Israel, and communicate truth about who he is and what he's doing in the world. But then he went further than that and expressed himself through his son who made the universe. And the author says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So in other words, if you want to know who God is and what he's about and what his intentions are, the author of Hebrews says, look to Jesus. Look at his life. Look at his teaching. He is really the greatest revelation of God's will to humanity. Going back to our Chuck Close illustration, you know, the great thing about Chuck Close is that he has written a lot of stuff and he's interviewed with lots of people describing why he does the things he does in his work. So for example, if we ask him, so why portraits? It turns out Chuck Close has a rare condition called face blindness. In other words, he can remember almost anything except for people's faces, including his own wife, who he had been married to for 30 years. And so he has a very difficult time recognizing people because he has this rare condition. He says, I wasn't conscious of making a decision to paint portraits because I have difficulty recognizing faces. That occurred to me 20 years after the fact. I guess he's not that (laughs) self-reflective. I began to realize that painting portraits has sustained me for so long because I have difficulty in recognizing faces. And so that's his preoccupation with portraiture. He tells us that. We don't have to guess. Why did he change his style? Well, again, there's an explanation for this. He tells us that there was the event that took place midway through his career where as he was presenting uh, in a lecture, he had a seizure that caused him to become disabled. And so he was wheelchair bound. And in order to continue to paint, they actually had to tie paintbrushes to his hands. And that's the reason why he moved over to this more stylized type of painting. And so we have an explanation from Chuck Close himself. We're not left guessing. And so in the same way, what did God reveal about himself through Jesus? I think first of all, he revealed that he's actively working in the world. You know, in our world today, I think a lot of people believe that God is just distant. He sort of wound up the universe and let go and walked away. Or that he's abandoned us. And yet, what the Bible tells us and what Jesus' life tells us is that God is actively involved in our lives. That he, he wants to be a part of it. Secondly, 
it, Jesus revealed that God is compassionate and loving. If you ever have time, read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read the teachings of Jesus. They express God's nature, his love, his mercy, the agony that he feels looking on at this broken world in which we live. And that he never intended for this world to be the way it is, but that he has given us free choice and that we've used that to turn against him. That's why the world is messed up. Not because God is malevolent. But instead of just simply leaving us in our own filth, our own moral decay, God decided to enter into our world because he loves us. And finally, he made having a relationship with him possible through Jesus Christ. I remember before I was a Christian, I always pondered, is it possible to know God? Is it possible to even have a relationship with him? But I always concluded that, you know, even if God was out there and I could communicate with him, he wouldn't want to have anything to do with me. In part because I knew that I had a lot of things that I had done wrong and I felt this sense of distance between me and him. And yet, I encountered the teachings of Jesus and it taught that God has gone to the greatest extent, not only by coming to earth in the man Jesus Christ, but even dying a gruesome death in order to pay for my moral wrongdoing. And the Bible teaches that simply by turning to God in faith, we can have a relationship with God that will never end. I remember, you know, as a young kid, the exact moment that I lost my faith. I was sitting in a chapel at the Catholic school I was attending, which was adjacent to the school. I was sitting there by myself and I was looking around at all the icons, I was looking at the altar, and I started thinking to myself, there's so much tradition here. The human element is so strong, how can I even trust that any of this is really from God? Because there's so many layers of human tradition here that maybe I'm not even really figuring out what God wants to say to me. And so at that moment, I lost my faith. And so I went through a number of really hard times throughout my life. I got into a lot of trouble, spent some time in jail. And I remember when I was spending time in jail, I was really at one of the lowest points in my life. And I called out to God in a moment of desperation. If you're out there, show yourself to me. And I didn't hear anything. Years later, I moved here to Columbus to try to escape trouble. At least my parents thought that I could escape trouble here. And I found myself back in trouble. And um, I was facing some pretty serious charges, two counts of aggravated assault. And um, again, I thought my life is over. But I met this guy who was the chaplain, and uh, he started talking to me about Jesus, and I was just like, look, I'm not sure I believe in that. I don't even know if I believe in God. And he gave me this book called Christianity, The Faith That Makes Sense. And I just looked at him like, I haven't read a book ever. <laughs> what do you want me to do with this? And he's like, um, it's really easy to read. Why don't you just open it up and see if you like it? And so I started reading through it and I was amazed by all the evidence that it provided for Christianity and for the existence of God. I never even knew that there was evidence for God. 
I always thought that Christians just, you know, it took a wild leap of faith and often believed in spite of the evidence. And yet, reading through this book, I found just the opposite, that there was real evidence for belief. And so after completing the book, I just devoured it. This guy uh, came to me again, and he said, so what did you think about that book? And I said, it's amazing. And he said, well, what do you think about starting a relationship with God? And I'm like, maybe I'll go to school and, you know, go through like a catechism, and, and then maybe I'll do that. He's like, no, you don't have to do that. He's like, God tells you that you can turn to him at any moment and ask for forgiveness. And right there, I just sat there and prayed with him. And it was amazing because even though my circumstances hadn't changed, I felt this sense of peace come over me. And so fast forward, I ended up doing 18 months for what, I, for what I did. And I got out, and this guy calls me up, and he says, hey, you want to come to this campus Bible study? And I'm like, well, I'm on house arrest, so sure. <laughs> and uh, I talked to my parole officer, and, you know, I ended up going. And I heard a Bible teaching just like this. And uh, I was amazed at how the Bible actually spoke to me. I never thought the Bible would ever be relevant, but it was. And so I ended up going to a home church that same week and I, I noticed that the guy who was teaching was sitting right there on the couch. So I walked over and I was like, hey man, I really like that teaching you gave. And we sat down and started talking for a couple hours and I told him about all the stuff I had gone through. And so we started to build a friendship and started hanging out for several months. And I remember one day as I was like cleaning out all this stuff that I had accumulated while I was in jail, I picked up that book, Christianity, the Faith That Makes Sense, and I turned the cover over, and I was like, man, that's a good book. And I saw that guy's face plastered on the back of the book. <laughs> I was like, that can't be real. <laughs> so I jumped in my car, and I sped toward the office where he was located, and I practically burst through the door. And I was clutching the book in my hand. I said, you wrote this, right? And he looked up, and he's like, yeah. I said, you know, this book was instrumental in me coming to faith in Christ. I said, did you know that when you wrote this book that it would ever reach somebody like me in this place that I wouldn't wish on anyone? He's like, I wrote it for people just like you. And at that moment, I realized that God was calling me, that he had arranged things such that he would be able to answer my prayers. And so, maybe at some point in your life, if you don't consider yourself a Christian, you've called out to God and said, if you're there, show yourself to me. Maybe he's speaking to you tonight. Maybe he's trying to provide you evidence for belief in him. And if so, I'd encourage you to invite Christ into your life. Yeah, I feel grateful, God, that you provide... uh, both evidence, objective evidence for belief in you, but also that you provide subjective evidence as well, that you uh, speak to us personally. I'm grateful that you offer a variety of different ways to communicate with us, and um, it shows that you are a God who constantly pursues us, even though we often suppress the truth and unrighteousness. 
And I pray, God, uh, for those of us who may feel like, you know, this evidence is compelling and, and that we've investigated belief in you and um, maybe at the point where we are ready to acknowledge that Christ indeed was the sacrifice you sent for our sins. I pray that uh, just in a moment of honesty, we would turn to you and invite Christ into our lives, that we would ask for the forgiveness you freely offer through him. And we thank you for anyone who did that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.